Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Pete Bach, and I'm a managing director here at Back Bay in Boston. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and director here at Back Bay, Christian Thiel. Christian, welcome. Thanks, Pete. Always a pleasure to be here. The first podcast of 2024 for us, at least from when we are recording today on the 2nd of February. So, and I'm giving the date stamp because a couple of the spaces we're talking about have been moving very quickly. So potentially there could be a couple more deals or announcements in the space by the time this uh, podcast is is published. And today we want to provide an overview of a, of a couple of areas where folks at Back Bay have written thought pieces on the investment and deal space within biopharma. Uh, and those two would be firstly radio pharmaceuticals and second uh, psychedelics. So we've seen a number of interesting and notable trends in these areas over the past couple of years. And over the past year or so, these have been spaces where investors have been asking us about our perspective on. So today we'll provide a bit of an update on what's going on in each area and why there's been an uptick in activity and where we think things are headed. So Christian, maybe we can start with the area that, you know, has seen the most heat as it were, and that's uh, radio pharma. So maybe you can provide just a little bit of background on the radio pharmaceutical space as a therapeutic approach and sort of what the historic issues has been and how it's progressed to where it is today. Sure. So, yeah, I think we can start with a brief, uh, brief history of radio, radio pharma, obviously, you know, really quickly, you know, radiation has been around for a long time since kind of late 1800s is when sort of radiation therapy was first sort of implemented for, for oncology. Um, and the kind of radio pharmaceuticals, as we know, them really got started in the kind of in the, in the forties with, you know, basically radio iodine, uh, for thyroid cancer was basically the first foray into the world of radio pharmaceuticals. However, kind of both attempts at, at a, external radiotherapy and radioisotope therapies face a lot of challenges. You know, as you can imagine, they're not very specific. Uh, there's also, yeah. they weren't particularly potent and you know, a lot of side effects that, you know, obviously we still see in the, in the, in the radiotherapy space today, as you think about kind of, you know, broad-based radiation therapy um, in oncology. So that kind of led to what we now call the first generation of radio pharmaceuticals, which were a couple of products that launched in the early 2000s. These are products like Zevalin and Bexar, which were, you know, really promising. There was a lot of excitement about them mm -hmm. for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, but they ultimately wound up, you know, not being particularly commercially successful. One of the key issues surrounding them was really product availability. And as we'll kind yeah. of talk about, you know, the manufacturing element of these of these products is, is really critical. And a lot of that's driven by the short half-life of the radioisotopes that are used to, to generate these constructs. Mm -hmm. They also had higher production costs, as you can imagine. These are more complex to manufacture than, you know, your your uh, run-of-the-mill small molecule sure. or monoclonal antibody. So there were there were some additional complexities there. And given that, you know, you have the issues around kind of stability and the short half-life of radioisotopes, essentially the availability of therapy was pretty low if you were a patient that's not located somewhere close to where the right. products were manufactured right. or there wasn't like a very, you know, seamless kind of logistics of getting therapy from, from A to B. As we talked about in our white paper, uh, we've recently had a, uh, I think we what we have termed a radio pharmaceutical renaissance mm -hmm. uh, since then, which has featured a number of the kind of second generation products, which have been been quite successful. So you have kind of Zofigo from Bayer, Lutathera, and Pluvicto, um, which is now owned by Novartis. And Pluvicto specifically is a kind of PSMA, prostate-specific membrane right. antigen 
uh, targeting ligand and as a beta emitting uh, radioisotope lutetium-177, which is a very commonly uh, commonly used one. And yeah. that has, you know, achieved annual sales at kind of estimated over 1.3 billion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think one of the, the key advancements has been that the radioisotopes used in these therapies are much more stable than some of the kind of earlier iterations okay. uh, with longer, you know, longer half-life and kind of better manufacturing capacity. There's been a lot of, um, you know, I think a lot of talk about still trying to improve that. But I think you sure. know, you, we, we've had, these have been a pretty dramatic step forward from the first generation in terms of stability and also efficacy and safety. Right, right. Okay. And and before we go on, I just uh, would be remiss when we use the word our white paper in the royal sense. The white paper available on our website was co-authored by uh, Brianne Sullivan and Andrew Davis, a couple of our colleagues here at Back Bay. So, I want to make sure we give them their due. So, and, and a lot of that, you know, history and evolution has been on the, the therapeutic side, you know, mainly in, in cancer. So, maybe you could talk a little bit more on using radioisotopes, you know, and targeting ligands for diagnostic purposes as well. Yeah, I think that that's been a, a big area of interest as well. And, you know, given that, you know, you're able to, you know, use the kind of targeting ligand to get to a specific organ or tissue type. Um, and then, you know, it, it enables the use of some imaging technologies like, you know, positron emission tomography, PET scan, or uh, mm-hmm. SPECT, uh, which yeah. is single photon emission commu- computed tomography, um, you know, both of which are really useful for staging cancers and determining tissue permeation. They do have some limitations in terms of, you know, detecting, you know, very small or microscopic tumors. Okay. Um, but but generally speaking, you know, you're able to get, you know, very specific kind of detection of, of you know, tumor types that is highly specific to the organ and tissue type that you're interested in. This has also kind of unlocked um, some interest in what are called theranostic approaches. So, you have both kind of therapeutic and diagnostic potential with essentially the same, it could be the same product or the same targeting ligand. And, you know, this is really considered a a big opportunity in the kind of personalized slash precision Mm -hmm. medicine uh, area of things. Really good example of this is Lutathera, uh, which Novartis also markets, which is the same binding moiety as a as a diagnostic product called NetSpot. Um, essentially, they just have a different radioisotope that, that are used, but NetSpot uh, basically uses the same dotatate uh, ligand with gallium-68. Um, mm-hmm. That's able to detect rare neuroendocrine tumors on PET scan very successfully. Uh, and then essentially that determines eligibility then for patients who can then receive Lutathera, which you know that, that bi- the binding ligand then is kind of specific gotcha. to those tumors. Uh, and then also then you can use kind of the active, you know, lutetium-177 radioisotope right, right. to treat the treat the tumor. So it's a very interesting, you know, kind of synergistic application there. And they've also, you know, taken this approach outside of just oncology. So there's been a lot of uh, focus on neurology as an area for, you know, using radio, uh, radio pharmaceuticals as diagnostics. Uh, you know, Lilly has a product called Amyvid um, for pet imaging mm-hmm. and Alzheimer's disease um, that, that they can use to kind of estimate the density of beta amyloid neuritic plaques uh, and kind of, you know, their can be very useful in that space as well because you can see a lot about kind of structure, function, metabolism of the brain, right, right, and a lot more kind of enabling of disease understanding and pathology, uh, uh, kind of relative to I guess traditional techniques. So that's yeah. another you know really interesting area there. And again, as you mentioned, kind of at the outset, I think we've seen a lot of interest from you know the investor side here in terms of you know thinking about new opportunities, both from really early stage kind of company formation stage things all the way through to, you know, late stage opportunities and, and across the, across the spectrum. So very, very interesting time for, for the space for sure. 
Yeah. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about you know, that data and what we've been seeing as far as investor interest, as well as, as sort of the partnering M&A deal side of the coin. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at the you know, radio pharma space and Brian and Andrew did a great job outlining this in, in the white paper, you know, basically before 2021, you have kind of about, you know, 10 to 12 deals per year or so, which, you know, is a reasonable amount of activity. But then you look into 2022 and that jumps up to, you have 25, you know, M&A right. or licensing yeah. deals that took place that took place then. So, you know, real, real uptick uh, in activity there and a lot of kind of turning interest, which I think a lot, of, a lot of that's probably driven by the commercial successes and validation that, you know, some of these second generation products have, have brought forward. And I think if you also, you know, if you look at the number of uh, venture financings and also a total amount raised, 2022 was also a record year uh, in that setting for, for Radio Pharma, where you saw a big uptick in kind of the, you know, average round size, number of financings, um, and that sort of thing. You know, I think it slowed down a bit in 2023, which is probably a bit more, a bit macro, more macro driven, yeah. I would think, just given that, you know, things have generally contracted across the biotech industry in terms yeah. of, you know, financing, particularly on the VC side. Um, but you know, that's, this, I think this continues to be an area that, as you mentioned, there's a lot of activity. There have been, you know, several deals in the past few weeks in the radio pharma space. So still a lot, yeah. a lot going on. You know, one thing that I think we've been thinking through as well is, why is now the yeah, time that, now? that these things yeah. are, are are taking off? Um, you know, I think as as I mentioned, obviously the commercial success of you know your Plavicto, Ludothera, and those types of products, mm -hmm. I think, has really really you know ignited some of the interest there. Um, and the manufacturing and scale is really the I think the the biggest thing here that was limiting certainly for the okay. first generation products and has now seemingly overcome or is on the path to being overcome for some of the second generation ones. So if you think about like lutetium as an isotope, that has a half-life of about six and a half days. So as you could imagine yeah. from a manufacturing distribution point of view, you have a lot more time to get that therapy to patients versus something like a, like a lead isotope, for example, which is a, or on the order of hours of half-life. So okay. you have, yeah. you know, much less of kind of flexibility there and ability to scale. Mm -hmm. You know, there've been pretty well-documented issues with, you know, Novartis struggling to keep up with demand for Pluvicto with their kind of manufacturing that they had in place. But basically, they've now said that they've achieved an, uh, an unconstrained supply oh, there, wow. I think, with some, some changes in kind of the location and, and network of, of manufacturing and distribution there. So, uh, you know, I think from a de-risking point of view, it really seems that that, that manufacturing piece is not something that is a concern uh, in, the, in the same way that it was maybe, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. And you also have other uh, isotopes that are on the horizon that are, you know, are not yet at the kind of, you know, commercial GMP supply chain level. Um, like if you think about like an actinium, for example, um, which yeah. would have half-life of about 10 days, which again, gives you even more flexibility than a, okay. a lutetium-based product. So I think that that's, those are probably some of the, the key ones. And that has a lot of parallels, I think, to the antibody drug conjugate right, space, which right. we uh, we back bay collectively uh, and have, have also covered in, in a number of kind of thought pieces and things over the over the you know past year or so, which that was, I think, similar dynamics in terms of, you know, manufacturing issues that were a kind of key limiting factor in that space of, you know, yeah. stability and, and all of that sort of thing. But then you've seen a ton of activity there that's, you know, a lot of CDMOs are active in that space now. Right, There's a right. lot more, you know, resources and, and kind of flexibility there in terms of that not being a, you know, a limiting factor, obviously kind of highlighted with the Pfizer Seagen acquisition, which was a really sure. big, big right. uh, activity yeah. in, that, in that space. And I, and I think if you think about kind of from a technical perspective, a lot of similarities to 
to the kind of radio pharma right. space as well of kind of you have a you know an active kind of binding ligand and you hook it up to something that's actually going to be you know killing the tumor um it's you know in principle very if you you know okay, probably oversimplified but you know similar type of a of a concept and i think that's where we're seeing a lot of the investment with newer technologies again to draw that parallel with the the linker and the payload right in the adc space you've seen a lot of uh, uh companies with newer novel technologies to help get that payload in a very fine-tuned way or easy to manufacture manner onto that antibody or targeting ligand whatever the case may be as well as explore new next gen drugs you know that are ferried into the cell by a you know an, an antibody or a targeting ligand similarly with the radio pharma space we're seeing a lot of people again as you noted develop enabling technologies for newer isotopes mm -hmm. as well right. as sort of novel chemistries to you know better control that linking and final uh manufacturing step along the way and i think it's also interesting on the you know even sort of across the company life cycle and investment space you know one great example of how this space has accelerated and been one of the you know bright spots in 2023 from the biopharma space was raised bio they had one of mm -hmm. the you know more successful uh ipos uh which was a rarity in yeah. 2023 and then not too long you know I, I think it was less than almost six months it's like three months after the ipo yeah, yeah. three months okay mm -hmm. three months after the ipo they were taken out by um by bms so definitely yeah. a space in the even in the doldrums of of 2022 and 2023 uh that was uh, a, a bright spot in the space and again, if anyone's interested, you can you can find that white paper uh, on our on our website. Um, and and switching gears a bit to psychiatry and psychedelics. So that was a piece that was written by senior consultant Dr. Kevin Norman, and that too has been seeing a, a renaissance of sorts. So maybe you can talk through where where you know we see that space uh, evolving. Yeah, I think that's, a, you know, another really interesting one. You know, it's something that, you know, people have talked about, I think, for for a number of years, particularly if, uh, you know, not to get too into the, the tinfoil hats, but all the kind of, you know, suppressed research from back in the day yeah. and things about, you know, therapeutic potential of things like psilocybin and those types of of, uh, of active ingredients. And I think, you know, it's really seen a resurgence, you know, in the past few years in terms of, you know, real investment and R&D kind of support behind that from, from you know, the kind of private companies and, and yeah. additionally academics. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen a lot of interest there from kind of transaction activity. I think as, you know, Kevin highlighted in the, in the white paper, you know, you have a number of kind of significant transactions, mostly for earlier stage products. Um, but, you know, a lot in the kind of discovery preclinical phase one kind of range uh, in that space, most recently highlighted by the, the Otsuka and Mindset acquisition mm -hmm. um, in 2023, which... It was definitely the largest of, of those deals. I think it was the you know really the first one where you had kind of a you know established large global pharma making a significant okay. bet in that space. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's that's really signaled a lot of interest there. You know, certainly from a, a business development point of view, you've also had you know uh, J and J's Spravato, which is their esketamine product um, that yep. was approved a few years ago. Which um, you know I think there was a lot of excitement about that kind of you know in terms of its commercial potential. And one of the key limiting things has been the the REMS program that came along right. with the FDA approval there, 
where essentially, you know, after the patient is treated with the esketamine product, they have to be monitored by a physician, you know, for, yeah. for several hours after after treatment, you know, given the you know, potential for kind of euphoria and, uh, and abuse and kind of impact of, you know, they want, they're not sure if they can drive home from the appointment or sure. that sort of thing, yeah. which, you know, is a real world kind of practical consideration. But as, as you would expect, that's really slowed down the, you know, commercial ramp for that product because that it's, it's pretty burdensome from the patient side to... Have to have and it's to a new paradigm for those physicians yeah. as well, right? Exactly, yeah. right. A lot of a lot of new new things and variables there. So I think on on the one hand, you know, if that's kind of the way that things are going to happen, you know, that I think that sort of clinical landscape has a way of adapting to those types types of things. If that is in yeah. fact the way that things are heading, but on the other hand, I think if you think about it from kind of an, an investment point of view and thinking about earlier stage opportunities, you know, how do you how do you form a strategy around? essentially like mitigating the risk of having to have that in your label ultimately when you get right to the market just because you know in terms of the the data so far you know it has kind of shown that that can really that can really limit things and you have you know you have pretty large development costs as you get into you know later stage programs here that you know even though these psychedelics are really interesting mechanisms there's a lot of compelling data behind them you still have to run a large phase three trial or, you know, usually multiple large phase three trials in, in psychiatry indications, which we know, you know historically are, are extremely challenging. You have generally very high rates of placebo yep. effect, like they are, you know, quite difficult to, to get right. So yeah. I think we'll, we'll kind of see how these things that now that I think these early stage bets kind of translate as they move forward and, and you know, get into later stage studies and how that maybe changes things. But yeah, it'll be interesting, interesting to see. Yeah, I, I think it's one thing that is not insurmountable but is, is yeah. sort of a new, you know, and we, we run up against this in, in different areas where a physician group may not be, you know, familiar with even the business model or have the physical infrastructure to house patients, wait for patients, you know, or familiar with injectable medicines in the office. Right. And, you know, a very strong argument to be made from a commercialization perspective that having someone like, J and J, you know, iron out the kinks in that regard, and you know, use, um, you know, their market development efforts and the data that they're finding as far as issues of of uptake and physician comfort and education. You know, there's a something to be said for being a fast follower um, in those issues. Yeah, and so maybe taking it up a level because in in you know psychiatric and neuropsych, you know, we've been seeing some you know, recent activity and, and interest in a space, you know, from a from a BD and investment point that's been, you know, relatively quiet, mm-hmm. you know, when comparing it with other therapeutic areas in the last five years or so. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, as probably many of our listeners are probably aware, I think, you know, two of the largest transactions that, you know, I think if you look at the fourth quarter of 2023, you had a kind of huge increase in M&A activity. And I think the real highlights of that were probably, you know, the kind of Karuna acquisition by BMS and then Cerevel being acquired by AbbVie. You know, overall, I think it's very interesting in terms of exactly to your point, you know, those companies, just, you know, despite being, you know, very successful in terms of their trajectory up until that point in terms of, you yeah. know, how their, you know, share price and market caps have trended. And particularly if you look at Karuna from kind of inception to the acquisition, I think it's been as steep of a growth curve as we've seen. And all that being done in, you know, very challenging, you know, psychiatry focused indications, you know, both of those companies were, you know, heavily invested in schizophrenia as a, as a lead uh, kind of lead program um, That's where their lead yeah. assets were. You know, you had some interesting pieces there in terms of, 
enough kind of innovation in the sort of the therapies that they were bringing forward, but Mm -hmm. relatively well characterized and validated mechanisms that there was less risk in, you know, if you think about the kind of muscarinic program for Corona, like it was, it was known that that is a mechanism that will work in schizophrenia. And then there were just some, you know, potential kind of toxicities associated with that, which then they were able to make some modifications to, to address. So in, in in a lot of ways, it was a very, you know, simply elegant kind of solution there. Um, which again, I think was not, was not so kind of pushing the limits in terms of what kind of mechanisms and targets you're looking for, but enough of an innovation that you're kind of striking that balance between compounding, you know, risk and, and also, you know, and also innovating, which I think, you know, certainly, certainly BMS was, you know, thought that that, that was of interest and was, you know, very large transaction, obviously. I think we've been getting a lot of questions, you know, since those two of, you know, is this, is, does this mean like psychiatry is, is back in? Is this what pharma yeah. is looking for? Like, is this what we should be working on? And I think, you know, it, it's kind of hard to say whether it's, you know, were those just two specific instances of the right, you know, products at the right time, or is this yeah. kind of a, a broader trend? You know, I think there's enough, I think there's enough data to say that, you know, obviously on the, on, on the higher end, if you're able to get something to, uh, you know, relatively, you know, de-risk phase three sure, point, sure, yeah. you know, uh, you know, that's what pharma would, would be interested there. There's enough going on, I think, in the kind of early stage psychedelic space. You know, I think that I think this is definitely going to precipitate more interest from kind of early stage R&D and kind of academic yeah. uh, kind of research that I do think we will start seeing, you know, kind of more coming forward in the psychiatric space here around expanding off of these things, looking into other kind of novel mechanisms, mm-hmm. you know, some learnings from, you know, how these companies, you know, obviously we'll see kind of how things go with with their kind of phase three data and, and readouts. Um, yeah. But, you know. Is there are there learnings to take away that do ultimately de-risk later stage development in some of these psychiatric indications where you know historically that's been what's what's been limiting I think a lot of the kind of venture investment in, in early stage opportunities. Yeah, yeah, and certainly you you see some pockets in in you know news flow in that space. The Kinexus being you know founded with four BN money. Yeah, at the end of last year, sort of with precision you know therapeutics for psychiatric diseases as well. So it'll be interesting. Uh, to look at how the very early stage target discovery and investment and development in that space goes. Maybe a, a topic for another white paper. Yes. And on that, just, you know, one area that that I've been super interested in over the last decade or so that, you know, won't spend a lot of time, but just parenthetically, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves going forward is is in the antibacterial space, which historically has been just an utter... I'll keep it clean, you know, a, a graveyard uh, of investment due to a variety of reasons. And there's plenty of right. people fighting the good fight from, you know, both investment and and sort of policy on that front. And and I won't sort of relitigate all those those issues. You can go back and listen to one of our podcasts with with Mark from Antabio, which was published a couple of years ago. But, you know, there there were a couple you know, interesting financings disclosed, you know, at the end of 2023 and the beginning of 2024. One is from our friends at Antabio, a French antibacterial Mm -hmm. company, raised 25 million euros from the AMR Action Fund. Claramedics, which is another IND phase one stage sort of antibacterial company that raised uh, 33 million Series A, as well as Revagenics, the West Coast antibacterial company that raised a Series B undisclosed amount from 10 Mile and Nova Holdings. So again, not only in the general VC funding climate that we saw in 2023, but 
VC funding within the antibacterial space. I actually thought those three deals popping up right, you know, within two months of each other was pretty interesting. And again, is that a very specific blip or a, a trend remains to be seen, but uh, certainly wish all the folks in that space uh, the best because it's, you know, highly needed. Absolutely. I think you know, it would be great to see some more investment there. I think, you know, obviously you think about from a public health point of view and you think about kind of drug resistant infection and that sort of thing, like, uh, you know, obviously that's a, been kind of academically discussed as a huge need forever, yeah. but you just have really never seen that translating into, you know, kind of a large push from the industry side. So it'd be interesting to see if that, that yeah. does kind of ultimately, you know, precipitate more activity there, which I think exactly to your point would be certainly a good thing for these companies, but I think, you know, probably more broadly would be, uh, would be useful. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the challenges there are not just investment, it's sort of larger structural right. issues with respect to drug utilization and, and payment models and whatever. Yeah. Go back and listen to that podcast with, with Mark if you're interested in those issues. So, well, thank you, Christian, again, and, and also want to reiterate uh, thanks to our, our authors that, that spent the time and effort to look into these spaces, uh, uh, Brianne, Andrew, and, and Kevin. Uh, if you have any other questions about biopharma or medtech strategic development, partnering, licensing, or more, you can head on over to our podcast page on our website and submit it at www.bblsa.com slash podcasts. That's bblsa.com backslash podcasts. Your question may be a topic on an upcoming podcast, and we look forward to hearing you. Thanks, Christian. Thank you, Pete. 